in 2008, I read an article on Huffington Post written by one of my favorite investigative journalists, Diane Diamond, and it was about this guy with a funny name, Basil Boz, and he did amazing things. He rescued children from all over the world. As an ex-CIA person, he had a group of people together, and he's actually going all over the world rescuing these people. I found it to be unbelievable, but exciting to read about at the same time. And it sparked my interest because back in, in 2008, human trafficking really wasn't a household word like it is today. And so that sparked my interest in learning more about human trafficking and to learn more about my guest, Basil Baz. Welcome to the show. Welcome. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. Well, I'm I'm Delilah Jones from ImaginePublicity.com, and this is Imagine Publicity on Air. And today we're going to talk to Basel Boz about human trafficking. And the first thing I would like to do, and and what I'm going to say is, I'm I'm can't read his whole bio because to go over all the achievements he's he's done over the years would take the whole show. So, Boz, I'm going to let you hit the highlights and tell the audience a little bit about your background. Sure. Um, I'm a Citadel graduate. I'm a former captain in the United States Marine Corps of Counterterrorism. Uh, I was uh, recruited after that into the CIA and became a paramilitary case officer for uh, a good 10 years, particularly out of Crown Branch. Um, and it was after that time that uh, I decided to change gears or shift gears a little bit and um, get into uh, the anti-trafficking world back in 1993, which uh, was something that most people weren't not even aware of. But uh, during a time in Mogadishu, Somalia, uh, when we were there in 93 during the Civil War, uh, our team rescued a couple of little girls who were not indigenous to the region. Um, and uh, when I got back to the United States, I just started wondering what was happening in America. Um, and at that time, the idea of children being sexually exploited and trafficked was something that most people in the United States thought took place somewhere else, like Thailand, South America. Africa, whatever it may be, I soon, I soon came to find out that that was not the case. And then at that time in 1993, we had approximately 250,000, I believe, children missing from the United States, and many of them were, in fact, being sex trafficked. But it wasn't a priority within law enforcement, and quite honestly, I'm not so sure they had the training or knew what to do with it at that time to get their hands wrapped around it. Um, so we formed the Association for the Recovery of Children, which is a 501c3 nonprofit organization of former intelligence, military, and law enforcement personnel who are dedicated to the rescue of uh, sexually exploited, missing, and abducted American children. And that's what we focus on as American children, whether they're, that's happening to them here in the United States or whether that is happening to them abroad. And so that's where we are to this day. That's a little bit about me and how I got where I am. 
Well, just to back up a little bit, your your experience with the CIA, you said you were recruited into the organization. How many years were you with CIA, and how did that experience impact your life? Um, I was recruited out of the Marine Corps uh, for 10 years with the CIA. Um, it was probably uh, every young man's dream uh, to be a paramilitary case officer and be a spy. Um, the tradecraft that I learned there, the things that I taught, um, put me a cut above probably m- most individuals. Uh, the special operations community invested a lot in me, um, which uh, also placed me uh, at the top of the line, so to speak, as is and as we can see now with many special operations officers, whether they're Navy SEALs or Delta or Ground Branch or GRS or whatever it may be, um, these are pretty much the president's secret hand. And when all diplomacy fails, these are the people that go in and take care of business to defend the nation. Um, These are the type of people that you saw go after Osama bin Laden. They're the type of people you saw go after Baghdadi uh, recently. And so um, all of that experience allowed me to develop a, um, an MO uh, or a mode of operation that was founded in all of that tradecraft so that we could look for these opportunities and these open windows in order to rescue uh, missing and abducted American children. So we don't carry weapons with us, and we don't need to. Um, we just fall or lean into all of that tradecraft whether it involves technical tradecraft, surveillance, counter-surveillance, all the things that we use in the spy world. Um, And that's pretty much what we use to look for perpetrators. So with that in mind, there are not too many places a perpetrator can hide that we can't find them, and there are not too many places they can take children that eventually we cannot locate. So you you say you don't take weapons, so... uh... And I just want to insert this in here that you played a role on one of my favorite shows, The Blacklist. You used uh, weapons a lot in that in that role. Uh, <laughs> and I, did everyone I did, else? I did, and you know, I uh, I'm not a big owner of a lot of weapons. I love my Second Amendment rights. I have weapons. Um, I believe that they are a great uh, offensive and defensive mechanism. Um, I would rather have one and not need it than to need it and not have it. And I've come to learn uh, and speak about this very often, particularly with the incidents that occur in the United States that, um, for example, when we talk about guns, and this is nothing political at all, this is all safety, um, is that guns don't kill people. People with guns kill people. And if they don't have guns, well, they'll make bombs. And if they don't have bombs, they'll use sticks, they'll use knives, they'll use whatever. So the issue isn't the weapon. The issue is what's happening to the people. What are we teaching people to do? How, why are we teaching people to hate? Why are people taking people's lives? And if we want to get into the whole discussion, which some people do statistically, every year we have more people cut with knives and die or killed in cars uh, than we ever do with guns. So I think while it gets so much exposure is because the media chooses to expose that, I would venture to say that if the media exposed how many people are killed by drunk drivers, that sooner or later people would want to go, well, we're taking everybody's cars away. 
But, you know, in our country, there is a reason, and I know this probably better than most people, there is a reason why our forefathers put that Second Amendment in there, because they realized that at any time during the course of history, a government can become tyrannical. They understand that, and we have a constitution that says we the people, and they want to make sure that that's the way it stands, not we the government, that the government can never take us over. And so as I traveled in my CIA career, whether it was under, you know, uh, programs established by the UN or whoever it may be, uh, you know, there's always, they're always trying to take the weapons away from the people in the country that are fighting. They think that's going to quell all of that, and it doesn't because they find more weapons. The black, the black market that's been here is never going away. Or they make bombs, or they use sticks. Or So, again, I go back to this simple thing, is that, uh, that the tool isn't the issue here. It's the mindset of the people. And I think in our country, if we're dealing with this, and I, I apologize, I know we segued a little bit here. Um, I think that we have to ask, what are we teaching our children? Why are we teaching people to hate? What video games are they watching? I mean, look, you know, when we get to talking about here a little bit later about human trafficking, um, you know, there are certain video games that kids um, are are watching today. Um, and, for example, in one of those video games, if you kill a prostitute in the game, you get points for it. I think it's called Grand Theft Auto. And uh, so you have to ask yourself, wait a minute, seriously? We're rewarding our children who are watching this video game for killing a person. And we're devaluing that person. You know, we say nowadays that no one is, is a prostitute. What's happening is because we know trafficking is they're being prostituted, so to speak. So, um, yes, I, I, I do carry a lot of weapons in the blacklist. It is a fun show. And we're always killing bad guys, and I don't have a problem with that. <laughs> Again, one of my favorite shows, and you've made some very excellent points. Um, let's go into talking about human trafficking and organized crime. Now, in in the United States, we always think of the mafia, you know, the Italian mafia. But from what I understand, there's – Mafias all over the world. You know, you have the Russian mafia or the Armenian mafia. They're they're everywhere. Um, right. How how is the connection between these organized crime groups and human trafficking? Well, let's uh, first take a look at the fact that we have, I think, approximately three hundred thousand sex trafficked children in the U.S. at any given time. Um, and sex trafficking generated $99 billion globally and $32 billion just in the U.S., which makes us, the U.S., the world's largest sex buyer. And it is, yes, the second largest criminal industry, and it is the fastest growing. And then, of course, we know that 80 percent, uh, no, not 80, I think 83 percent of the sex trafficking victims in the U.S. are Americans, and they're not foreigners. And so these are all being controlled now uh, by gangs and cartel. A lot of them are. Uh, it doesn't mean that there can't be more sophisticated organizations, which, by, to be very honest with you, uh, could be corporate, built out as corporate. But the distribution uh, structure of sex trafficking kind of looks like 80% to 100% is gang and cartel controlled. So what you have... You have like organized crime rings, which is like the international cartels. 
And then after that, you have rings or groups from multiple gangs. Uh, after that, you generally have large gangs, and they are in charge of the structure or the money activities. You have biker gangs. You have small gangs, which are structured, you know, for money and activities. Then we have entrepreneurs, which are the pimps in the gangs. Um, then we have other entrepreneurs, which are pimps and madams that are, that are not structured, but two-thirds of those are gang members. Um, then we have a thing called employers, which are like massage parlors, strip clubs, hotels that have their own prostitutes, like in Vegas. And then we have friends and family. Um, so when we look at the street gangs, and we talked about those a little bit, they're increasingly turning to human trafficking as a way to generate funds necessary for all of their operations. According to uh, my law enforcement friends and the reporting we've looked at, gang involvement in sex trafficking has increased uh, every year over the past four years. Um, you know, and with state and national crackdowns on drug trafficking, gangs have actually started turning to sex trafficking for their financial gain. Unlike drugs, girls or young boys can be used more than once. Um, <clears throat> so the case records show that Gangs are increasing in their skills at recruiting and grooming, something that you want to talk about a little bit later, and actually forcing children and youth into what we call the commercial sex industry at an average age of generally 12 to 14 here in the U.S. And then, and in addition to all of this, providing an opportunity for substantial profits, sex trafficking also usually allows the gangs to kind of minimize their uh, certain risks, for example, the risk of death or injury from violence, because we've always we've seen that in gangs, the risk of detection by police, um, because police know the drug game, the game really well, they know what to look for, and of course, the risk of successful prosecution, because I can tell you right now, our judicial system is so broken that, and I don't think that it, it really understands how do you murder a child without killing them, and that's sexual exploitation. So that we're seeing people that are getting picked up for trafficking, but they're getting really minimum sentences. And they're out in no time, and they're right back out there doing it. So the, the trafficking cases pretty much in the United States are largely underreported because the, the victims actually fail to report it because they're, they're ashamed or they're in fear and because of sometimes just misclassification of the cases where the, the offensive site is something other um, than sex trafficking. Um, and here's a real interesting one you'll find, Delilah, is that there's now a recent trend in the use of what we call ungang members. Uh, they're kind of plainclothes pimps or recruiters and traffickers, and they're about generally 15 to 19-year-old boys who don't even look like gang members. They look and they dress like normal high schoolers, and they control victims by using manipulation and violence and gang affiliation to threaten them or their families. And to law enforcement officers, these boys look like the boyfriends or the friends of the girls. So um, uh, when we deal with these rivals, and here's the interesting thing too, rival gang members occasionally, they're joining forces in the sex trade now. This is really important. We recently saw MS-13, the Bloods and the Crips and the Gershons, uh, who at one time fought against each other, uh, now they're getting together to, to basically prioritize their profits uh, over turf wars. And this enables them to kind of maximize their profits and evade detection from law enforcement. So um, 
I can go into uh, talk to you a little bit about the tractors and the pimps themselves if you'd like me to to do that. Oh, absolutely! And with with everything that you've said, it's it's like where do where do we begin with? I mean, if I were a law enforcement officer, my head would be swimming. It's kind of like, where do you start? Do you start from the top and work your way down, or you, do you start at the street level and work your way up? How do how do we get even a handle on this? Well, the first thing we have to do is everybody has to be mission focused. Uh, number one, number two, uh, you have to be on the same sheet of music. Um, and number three, you have to make sure that you can detect corruption within the ranks. And um, so what I mean by all of that, the same sheet of music, for example, I think I mentioned to you, we, we've finally gotten to the point after so many years since 1993 that we've minimized our strategic partners, uh, people that come alongside of us, because we've realized that there are a lot of law enforcement, there are a lot of NGOs out there, that don't really know what's going on out there. They may get a little bit of training. Uh, they really got their heart into it, and uh, they go out and do the very best they can as an NGO, and they fall short, they get discouraged, uh, they're not successful, and they get out of the game. For law enforcement, they are inundated with a lot of other activities. You know, there's homicides, there's car thefts, there's money laundering. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. They have budgetary constraints. They have communication constraints, and they have judicial constraints. Uh, you know, a law enforcement officer in Denver, Colorado, can't just drive his car all the way to Los Angeles, California, without getting all kinds of having to go through all kinds of red tape just to track down, you know, a missing person, or a victim, or 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 a trafficker, or whatever it may be. No matter how close they are to it, you know, they that has to be financed, and so. Maybe there's a communication breakdown between Denver and Los Angeles PD. There's all kinds of scenarios, and this is one of the things we're able to see because this is all we're focused on is just uh, anti-trafficking. Um, and then the, <coughs> the second thing that I mentioned about corruption, sadly, we're discovering more and more corruption within the ranks, within the ranks of our NGOs, within the ranks of our law enforcement partners. And, and let me qualify this by saying I, I'm an adjunct professor for the FBI from time to time. Uh, I am also – I come from a, a law enforcement background, so and I have a lot of law enforcement friends, and we work alongside of them to, uh, to, to tackle this, this issue. So it's not everybody. But there is corruption within the ranks. There are, we have not picked up – successfully picked up one child that's been trafficked or prostituted that has not had a client or multiple clients who are law enforcement officers. We have not picked up um, one child who has had a client who was a judge or an attorney or a doctor or a pastor or whatever. So what I'm getting at here is the corruption <clears throat> is rampant. And so you have to be, have a betting mechanism in place, and you have to have a standard that's set, and you have to stay in your lane and you have to adhere to it. So if you clean up the corruption within the ranks, within the judicial system, so that we have no more what we coined, the term we coined in, uh, in ICE called, I mean in uh, ARC, called ICE, I-C-E. Uh, it stands for Institutional Child Exploitation. And this is, after many investigations over the year, what we are finding is that there may be a judge who turns a child back over to his perpetrator. 
whether it's his custodial father who's been molesting them or not, because the judge is also a perpetrator. So there's it's organized. So I'm kind of going full circle here. When we talk about organized crime, um, that's what you're looking at also. That, in a sense, is organized crime. Or if a traffic child comes in and points a finger at a law enforcement officer in the courtroom and says, that guy molested me in the back of his car, um, and the judge doesn't do something about it because the judge is playing favors or because it's going to make the department look bad or whatever it may be, we run into that. We also run into NGOs that have great marketing teams, and they make a lot of money, um, in the millions, actually. But they, in essence, are using this trafficking. The, it's become a buzzword now, of course, human trafficking, uh, uh, to make profit, um, to build their own business model. And so they may get grant money or they may get a lot of uh, money from donors, but there's no oversight. So you don't really know how the money is being spent. But when you ask them, okay, as an example, of course, you made $15 million this year in grant money. Uh, how many of you guys rescued more than 10 kids? And you don't get a hand up in the air. Something's wrong with that because, look, we don't take grant money. Ours is strictly donations. We've been doing this since 1993. We are blessed, and I really mean this, blessed, uh, to have a 100% success rate in every kid we've gone after we've brought home. And if we're doing this <clears throat> on the minimum amount of donations that we receive for each case, and people that are making 100 times more than we are are not doing that, something's wrong with that formula. And so we take a look at all three of those things. So to answer your question, Delilah, if you get those three things in order, oh, and, of course, the third thing, excuse me, I thought you're getting everybody mission-focused and on the same sheet of music. So you get rid of the corruption um, in, in your ranks, and you want to get everybody on the same sheet of music. And what that's like what we finally did. We realized that nobody was on the same sheet of music. So we kind of institutionalized our experiences in a three-day course uh, that we offer now to anyone, law enforcement, whoever it may be. Uh, three days, it's on our website. It's seven hours a day. It's very intense. But what it does is it equips people to not only go out and do what they need to do, but it allows us to feel confident that they can come alongside of us and know what they're doing. And quite honestly, there are a lot of people with great hearts out there, um, but sadly they do not know what they're doing. They they might read a book, but they're not in the streets, and we're literally in the streets. My, uh, my director of human trafficking, Tina Paulson, literally uh, is in the streets sometimes daily uh, working on cases, as is Ed Turner or Juan Gonzalez or Kirk Freeman or, you know, our operators. Um, so they have this, this downrange experience, so to speak, and what we try to do is pass that on. So if you get everybody on the same sheet of music and you say, okay, we're focused on just this, and you can create um, a part of your division, wherever it is, in your NGO, whether it's your law enforcement or wherever it may be, that does nothing but that, and you can let them focus on nothing but that, um, they'll start putting a, taking a real bite out of that. So um, those are the things that I think need to be done. And that comes from, believe it or not, that comes from a military and special operations CIA mindset of knowing how to attack the situation so that you do accomplish your mission. 
Um, back in my CIA days, I don't know if there are many operations that we were not successful on. There is a type of planning. Uh, there's a methodology that you put in place. It's just like, and most people, most listeners who might have a military background will understand this, uh, it's like using the five-paragraph order. Um, we use it all the time. Why? Because it's tried and true, and it works, and we don't deviate from it. And so that's what we do here is we try to stay in our lane. We don't try to do things we're not equipped for. We're not a restoration center. Um, you know, we're not a recovery program. Um, when all local, state, and federal law enforcement efforts have been exhausted, then we get involved and we apply our methodologies uh, to that. And, and let me just say this also, Delilah, it is not that we are better because we are just who we are. That's not it. We have, we have the, uh, the freedom and the ability to access newer technologies a lot faster than our law enforcement or government uh, partners do. And, that, and sadly for them, that's a, it's, a, it's a state of bureaucracy that prevents them from getting the most advanced tools sometimes. When you're a civilian, you simply can pick up the phone and say, hey, I heard about this new widget that lets us look behind the veil. There's no law that prevents that from happening. Would you love to, would you love to donate that to the program to help find more kids? And, of course, then you have cleaner, quicker access to that. And, um, and then, of course, you move forward with your mission accomplishment. So that was a lot. But um, <laughs> This is definitely so, a lot yeah. to process. It, and it is a lot to process, I know. Well, but you know, it it just it's overwhelming. It's an overwhelming problem. And even though you can lay all of this out, how are we implementing this and and what kind of obstacles do you run into as an as a group um trying to implement some of the things that you know are working for you? Well, we don't run into too many. We keep a pretty low profile. We have some great uh, support by law enforcement. We have a very good relationship with the Department of Justice at, at the highest levels, I can say. I'm, I'm really glad to be able to have that. Um, more and more NGOs that understand uh, that we're the real deal um, are starting to come alongside of us, which is great. Um, but those three things that I pointed out a minute ago, um, one of the biggest fault lines that we have to navigate is corruption, to be honest with you. I mean, it is financial. It, we're going to always – there's always going to be a financial need in order to get a team on an airplane just to go from here to, I don't know, Philadelphia to rescue a kid. You have to buy a ticket. Um, and one day, perhaps, we will find someone who will give us sustainable funding. You know, that $100 million where we can turn it over to some money people and they can just tell us every year, this is how much money you have to run your, your operations, and then maybe we can pay salaries, and maybe maybe we will build that 3,000-person army uh, that is so dedicated to just this that the U.S. government practically turns it all over to us or some of it. But in the meantime, um, what we do is we try to navigate the corruption. We do that by vetting every single entity uh, that is either in our AO, which is what means our area of operation, on every specific case. So it's not like we get a case and we just run out the door. We do a contextual analysis. We gather a lot of intelligence um, on the, the victim, 
and on the perpetrators. Um, we take all the paperwork, all the legal paperwork, we run that through our attorneys to make sure it's all uh, validated. We try to mitigate our liability by doing that. And then, as I said earlier, once we know that all local, state, and federal law enforcement uh, has been exhausted, we'll go ahead and get involved. And many times, we will actually go to our law enforcement partners and say, look, we know you were working on this case and this missing kid. We believe this kid is here. We'd love to come alongside of you and um, make you guys the heroes. And, that, and that's really what we do. We're not, we're not, you know, I believe it's important that the community understands that the people that have been um, given this responsibility, uh, which is oftentimes law enforcement, that they know they've done a good job. And I believe we owe it to help them. Um, I also believe that we the people, our constitution, this is an American problem, and I believe that we have a lot more power than most Americans believe. And I think you should uh, hold on to that power, and I think that every American that is um, led to get involved in this uh, really horrendous crime, so to speak, um, against human beings here in the United States, particularly against children, uh, owes it to the country to get involved uh, in whatever way they feel they can. Um, and that's what we did. And, you know, uh, we have a motto with ours that says, if we do not, who will? And um, there are a lot of people that just aren't aware, believe it or not, even today, they're not aware that uh, there's the trafficking of children. Uh, there are a lot of people, if you tell them that it's a $32 billion uh, industry, you know, they'll they'll go, you're crazy. How could that be? Um, and yet it is true. Um, the majority of people in America, who knows, maybe they sit behind their TVs, they go to work, they have their responsibilities, and it never really affects them until one day their children are missing. But I always point out to my audience that it is literally, we have more human trafficking in our world today and in the United States than we did, than we ever had in the entire African slave trade years and years ago when the nation was being founded. And, and it, it is not, <coughs> it is not a, uh, it's not a, just a cultural issue. Uh, it is an American issue. I mean, look, we have, you know, we, we know the term pimps. Well, guess what? Pimps are nothing but slaveholders. And then you have enforcers, and those are the people that beat the girls or the kids. On top of that structure, you have what we call bottom girls, and those are the people that collect the money and keep track of the girls, and they beat the girls. Then you have this whole other part of the organization, which is recruiters, and those are the ones that solicit the new girls pretending to be like a boyfriend or whatever it may be, and they're the ones that groom them. Then you have scouts, and they're the ones out looking for vulnerable kids. Then you have another group called informers, and those are the girls that tell on other girls. <laughs> then you have testers, and they're posing as recruiters. And then you have a crew or stable, this is all terminology, which are the girls under the same pimp. And then you have a closet girl, that's another term, and that's a girl that's thrown in the closet until basically she submits. And, you know, in the United States, when we look at nationally, you know, sex trafficking, 80%, as I mentioned earlier, I believe, 80% of those trafficked are U.S.-born citizens. So it's not just people coming from another country. Um, if we look at the race of traffickers and pimps, 
uh, this is just a tractor. So you're going to find this is a very interesting statistic. So the race of tra sex traffickers, about 4% in the United States are of a Hispanic background. Let, let me stop for a second and let me, let me qualify this. I don't believe in our country that we have Asian Americans, Hispanic Americans, Irish Americans, African Americans. I don't believe in any of that. What I believe is we're all Americans. That's it. I mean, I've got I've got Irish friends that have never even they claim they're Irish Americans. They've never even been to Ireland. I've got friends of mine that I grew up with that claim to be African Americans. They don't they don't even know what Africa looks like. And Hispanic quote unquote Hispanic Americans that's never even been in a Latin country. They don't even speak Spanish. You know. So when we talk about this stuff, we're generally it's a way of us kind of categorizing people because in our minds' eyes. It gives us an idea of what they look like or what we're looking for. But ultimately, we're all Americans. Because I'm going to tell you something. When we go down range in combat, anybody gets blown apart, we all bleed the same color. That's it. We're all the same. So it's, when we talk about a national issue, this is a national issue in our country as Americans. But if we're looking at the races, so to speak, of the traffickers, what we generally get is – we get uh, about 2% is the Asian, with 4% Hispanic, 10% white, and the rest of the percentage is black. Um, the race of the child being trafficked, the larger percentage are black children being trafficked. 22% um, are generally white children, 18% are Hispanic, 2% are about Asian, and 3% are, are mixed, and then there's a missing percentage. Uh, of that, the race of the adult trafficking victims, and this is just the adults, 35% of them are white, 25% are missing, there's 2% Asian, Hispanic, and the rest is black. But this is what's interesting. The race of the sex buyers in the United States, okay? 5% are Asian, 13% are, are Hispanic, and 79% are white, mostly white males and white females. Those are your buyers. So, it, what's so ironic in all of this is sometimes when I look at the infighting between racial groups in America and we start, we start pitting people against each other, I stop and look at this chart and I go, guess what? It doesn't matter what race you are. You're all in this together. Whether you're black or white, you're buying or you're selling. Whether you're Asian or Hispanic, you're part of the problem also. And so I look at people and I go, look, there's, there's no way out of this. We have a problem, and that takes me full circle to simply this. Stop looking at that and start saying, guess what? We have an American problem. It doesn't matter what color that child is. If that child is being trafficked by any person of any color, then it's wrong. It's wrong. It's a crime, and it's wrong, and it needs to be stopped. So, um, Absolutely. Well, don't yeah. you think sometimes all of this, it, it, they people, the media especially, overanalyzes all of the statistics that you just, and it it ends up diminishing the story. It ends up diminishing the fact that this is a child, that this is a child who's being trafficked, and it's all diminished because we're arguing over whether the buyer was black or white or whether the seller was Hispanic or Chinese. It really doesn't right. matter. It does not matter. You are exactly right. It is a crime that's being committed against a child, and that's wrong. Now, look, it doesn't mean that crimes can't be committed against adults. I get that. We, For our 
at, at our AO, we're dealing with children, and 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 anyone under the age of 18 considered to be a child is innocent and helpless. And pretty much when you're an adult, you can just kind of make up your mind what you want to do. Now, I, I will say this. I've yet to find one adult that was trafficked as a child that is still incarcerated in prostitution that has ever said, I really love what I do every morning when I wake up and go to work. I haven't found one. No, what I have found is they're trying to find a way out because it is a horrible way to get in. And yet it makes you ask yourself when you're dealing with the adults because you want to protect the children, well, what made them vulnerable to begin with? And when we look at that, because in order to understand how we're going to protect our children, we have to understand sometimes how these adults got where they are. 22, 23, and they're being prostituted by a pimp. It's like, what happened? Well, what we find out is there's generally, in every single case across the board, there's a breakdown of the households. There's low parental involvement in their lives. There's a lack of protection and supervision, which basically leaves the youth open to recruitment and exploitation. And then sometimes there may be uh, generational poverty or homelessness or some kind of dysfunction or addiction and abuse that not only makes the child vulnerable, but the need for money makes risky behavior an option when it otherwise would not be that way. And, of course, then we have exploiters and victims alike who are pretty much desensitized to abuse and violence because they're so accustomed to it um, that they often perceive that as power. And when the, so when the family structure fails, government agencies become the parent. And the reality of all of this is that government is ill-equipped to raise our children. It's not the responsibility of the government. It's our responsibility. And quite honestly, if I look across the board, and excuse my French, but most parenting sucks. You know? Well, we live in a world now. Yeah. Let's speak to the parents out there because – like we spoke about off air, I think a lot of, of the general public believes that there's a fleet of white vans out there scooping up kids off of every street corner, and that's just not really the reality of it. Let's talk about how these children are getting put into the situations. It's you know the reality of it. I want parents to know the reality and how they can prevent this from happening. Certainly. Well, I will tell. I will say this is that a lot of the newer parenting in the world uh, is coming up in a in an environment of self entitlement. You know, the world owes me, um, and so they're having children, but um, they're not parenting. They're not putting their selfishness away and saying, "Look, this is my responsibility now." You know, and so I have to do everything I can to be a good parent. It's not every parent. But the ones that, that we're finding with the children that we're rescuing, this is what we're finding. Kids don't just run to the street. They're either running from something or they're running to something. And this is, this is information I'd like to share with the parents. One in seven children will run away before the age of 18. And today there are about 2 million runaway or homeless youth in the U.S. on any, any given day. And so children who are sexually abused um, – and, and this happens in the home. So let me say this to parents. If you've got a twisted mind, you're perverted, and you're sexually abusing your children, you need to be jailed immediately. So don't even go down that road. I mean, that, that really infuriates me because children who are sexually abused 
are more than twice as likely to run away. And children who are physically abused are three times as likely to run away. So, And, of course, you know, there are the throwaways, the ones that get kicked out. Um, and, and then so the parents go, okay, I can only do what I can do as a parent, but, you know, they spend most of their time in school. Well, okay, so what are the school factors that contribute to what we call at-risk youth and gangs? Well, if you look at their poor school performance or they drop out, chances are that child could end up in a trafficking situation. If there's a low school or teacher attachment, and this is important for teachers to know, you need to build relationships with your students. You know, they need to know. You know, in the old days, your teacher was somebody that you had confidence in. Your teacher was somebody you could come and ask for advice for, uh, advice from, excuse me. Um, so if you see suspensions or expulsions or um, sometimes kids that are special needs or slow learners, if you have, like, uh, kids with low academic aspirations, uh, if there's a lack of security at school, if there's a lot of bullying, here's one interesting for you, early dating, believe it or not. <clears throat> you know, a lot of my friends laugh at me. I don't have any children. But because of the trafficking issues that I deal with, I sometimes say, you know, I don't think I want my daughter dating until she's 21. <laughs> and they laugh at me. But, but what I'm saying is this, is there are some parents that are actually letting their kids dating at 11 and 12 years old. So, and then you need to be aware of what their peer groups are like. You know, peer groups can be a good influence, but they can be bad influence. Um, what happens in peer groups, they imitate each other's music, their clothing, um, and this kind of normalizes sometimes uh, antisocial beliefs and increases delinquent behavior, and it separates youth sometimes from the mainstream peers. So all of this, all of this, I'm saying all this to say this to the parents. Most of these kids, if not all of these kids that we rescue, are already broken. They're children who are sexually abused, and what they do is they learn to adapt and normalize sexual assault and rape, and they grow to accept it <coughs> as their place in the world. Um, they come to believe it. They, they hate and fear their abusers, um, but they lack the maturity and the autonomy to stand up for themselves. And so they show little resistance to any type of sexual assault by a pimp or, or other abusers. Um, you know, what happens, and for parents, I think one of the things that's lacking, and I think that I would advise them so that they never have what we call an adverse childhood experience, um, is that they learn to build resilience. And, that, and when I say that, that's the ability for your children to adapt well and bounce back in the presence of some very difficult life events. And um, some of those things that you want to look at as a parent um, might be their social connections. You know, the single most important factor in developing resilience in your children is to have a stable and committed relationship with a supportive parent or a caregiver or another adult. Um, and having friends or family who can be there for them during a tough time or to support them uh, is a really huge factor for, for resilience. Another thing is simply this. We're talking to parents. It's, it's parenting. You know, providing a safe and uh, nurturing environment for your children physically, mentally, and emotionally can allow them to grow up with more resilience. Um, and, and the communities, supportive communities, are crucial for nurturing parents. So despite what the audience may think of this, look, if you find yourself a good faith-based church, and, and I'm speaking mostly to the Christian faith here, 
Um, and it's a solid church. It's a good place for you and your kids to be because there's, there's a moral absolute that's being taught. And one of the problems that we're having now is we're in society, and it's a pretty big socialist push, is that we're supposed to tolerate everything. And there are no more moral absolutes. And so what that does to your children, it's very confusing. So when we're talking about this resilience, just remember that um, it can build, it can be built by the learning skills. That, um, how do I want to say this? Well, how about this? I, you know, resilience can be built by learning skills to keep the nervous system regulated to withstand the stress. That's kind of the physiological way of looking at it. Resilient people, they have social and emotional confidence, and they have a sense of purpose and optimism, and they're confident in their own strength and their abilities and their problem-solving skills. Um, they make realistic plans. They follow through with them. They manage strong impulses and feelings, and expressing and, pres- and possessing them in a healthy way without turning to some harmful coping mechanism. And quite honestly, sex trafficking is a harmful coping mechanism. You know, it's like the the recruiters prey on the vulnerable. They recruit your kids from social media, the apps, the gaming. If you don't know what your kids are looking at on and who they're speaking to on their gaming and their computers, you got a problem. Um, they stalk foster kids and runaways at train stations and bus stops. Because, as you know, foster system will give a kid a ticket. Next thing you know, they're down at the train station when they turn, whatever, 18. Um, so youth are often exploited to traffic, and believe it or not, and this is sad, by their own parents and their relatives and their foster parents. Um, sometimes you'll see these really interesting teen job postings, you know, that will lure youth into exploitation, promising them some job opportunity, like, hey, here's a modeling career. Um and sometimes victims are often abducted from parties. And it's not exactly the white man that you were talking about, Delilah, but, you know, through the use of drugs and alcohol. And then once the drugs get involved, you know, the pimps, they use those drugs not only to recruit but control these kids. Um, we had a recent, a recent trend in the use of sedatives and hypnotic drugs, which basically will incapacitate a child while keeping them conscious during a sexual assault. And uh, so the victims are often what we find are often heavy drug users. The pimps even encourage the drugs as an emotional buffering, grooming, basically by saying, well, you can't do a date sober. You know, you, you're, there's no way you're going to be able to sleep with these 20 people, you know, in one night without doing drugs. So prostitution, sadly, is a means for acquiring drugs, and, and this happens. So um, that's kind of stuff that we're looking at. You know, we have Romeo pimps. That's another type of pimp that you want to look for, parents. These are, these are older guys who will court your daughter, or it could be, an, it could be courting your son with gifts and attention. You know, it's, a, it's kind of the father figure and the lover. And that's the type of person that's going to listen and make your kid feel special. Um, they're going to fill in that father or that mother gap. Uh, but they're also going to have sex with your kid. Um, the pimp sometimes will ask favors, uh, like sleeping, ask you to sleep with other men for money or other women. And he'll tell her he loves her for doing it for him. Uh, what he does, he gradually increases the number of men per day. And if she tries to quit, then that's when the threats come. Um, they use a lot of psychological tactics that are the hardest. Uh, they're actually the hardest, not the threats, but psychological tactics are the hardest. When pimps aren't threatening the girl, they act like they love them. 
And the girls believe this love, and they stay with him, and they keep coming back. So after the grooming process, the victim will do pretty much anything to pimp ass. And, uh, and then you have those professional pimps. Those are victims are tricked into, I'm a talent scout, I'm a photographer, I'm a modeling agent, I'm a casting call director for a film. Or strippers and dancers are exploited in clubs by the management, you know. They'll say something like, well, we can make more money this way. You know, after you dance, if you go in the back room and you have sex with these men, uh, blah, blah, blah. And then now what you have is you have prostituting on the side. And then, uh, not finally, but we have these guys called gorilla pimps. And if they get a hold of your child, parents, what they do is they rape them, they beat them, they threaten them, they put them to work on the streets, they enslave them, and they continue to beat them routinely. And then once a year, maybe, <clears throat> he beats her so badly she ends up in the, in the hospital so that he can make her an example to all the other girls so he keeps them kind of in mortal fear, you know. So there's this whole attachment, obligation, addiction, and kind of testing thing that takes place. It's very well, as you can tell by what I'm talking to you about, it's very sophisticated. This isn't just somebody generally that it, that just grabs someone, rapes them, and lets them go. You know, they get this whole attachment thing going as a part of an earlier childhood sexual abuse. And the first person to rape the child generally is the pimp. He's a violent pedophile. And the girl is bonded to the pimp. Uh, and there's a thing we call limbic system bonding. Um, and we could get into that. But it, the limbic system, believe it or not, physiologically, it's a complex system of nerves and networks in the brain involving kind of several areas near the edge of the cortex concerned with instinct and mood. And it, it controls the basic emotions like fear, pleasure, anger, and it drives hunger, sex, and dominance to care for offspring. So just the fact, and I tell parents like this, you may not think that your 12-year-old girl cuddling on the couch with her 14-year-old boyfriend is doing anything, but the limbic system is engaged, and she's feeling all of those things just by cuddling. So you need to be aware of those things too. And, of course, there's obligations. You know, child victims often are forced to work to pay off their debt. You know, they have travel expenses, clothing, food. Um, There's addictions, as I said. The pimp will get them hooked on drugs. The pimp will provide them with drugs, and they can't get off of them. And then pimps sometimes will test their victims by sending in a fake rescuer. Somebody will show up pretending to be a John and say, I'm not really here to have sex with you. I'm really here to, uh, to get you out of here, to rescue you. And if the victim cooperates with the rescuer in any way, uh, and it's a set, of course, she's going to be bit, beaten severely later. And, of course, the pimp knows all about their family. He threatens to kill them. Probably chances are to parents, if your child has been abducted, uh, whether that's an online abduction, or we could get into a whole bunch of hours about the apps and things that uh, happen online. You know, it's ironic, uh, Delilah, is we lock our front door so that no one can physically come in and get our kids, and then we let our kid go to the bedroom and get online and talk to people all over the world, and we don't know who they are. And some of those are perpetrators proposing as another 12-year-old, another 15-year-old, whatever it may be, just grooming that child so they can set up an in-person meeting so they can eventually steal them or have sex with them. So anyway, uh, that was just a segue a little bit. But the threats, you know, sometimes the pimps, through all this process, the pimps will know everything about your mother and father. They'll, and they'll threaten to kill them. 
or they'll threaten to harm your little brother or your little sister if you don't do what they say. Uh, or they'll take photos. Uh, they'll take videos of the girl who's being trafficked with other men or the boy with other women or other men, and they'll blackmail the victims. Um, or they'll actually get them involved in other crimes, and they'll threaten to turn them into police. So they'll make them steal something for them or whatever. Uh, and they'll say, well, you're going to go to prison for 20 years if I tell the police that you did this, so you better keep doing what I want you to do. And all this boils down to control. Um, what they do is the traffickers strictly restrict the child's movement and ability to contact anyone. They take their phone away. They may give them a phone that they control. They may hide them in a basement. Um, they, may, uh, they may lock them in a cage. Um, you, don't, you know, what's interesting with um, 300,000 sex trafficked children in the U.S. at any given time, you don't see a lot of them walking on the street. We don't see scantily clad teenagers out there that are being trafficked. So the question is, where are they being held? Um, and most of the time, even if they are allowed to leave, the child is too afraid to escape, you know. So people go. Well, where are well what happens when... Yeah. When your you and your team, you know, make a rescue, what what condition are you finding this child in, and why are they trusting you? Well, that's a really interesting question, and um, I can only speak from our experience. But for us, I believe, without sounding too religious, that this is a call by God for us. Um, and um, and I believe God spearheads our operations. Um, you, this is a whole mind, body, and spirit scenario. <clears throat> what's happening to these children? I don't care what anybody tries to convince me. Otherwise, I've had my downrange time. I don't think people God needs people their belief or disbelief in order to exist. But He certainly exists in our arena. And with that, when we're prayed up, when we go into this. So far, every single child, for whatever reason, has known that we are there to rescue them and has just literally come to us. It's the most miraculous thing in the world. Um, and, it, and our approach is a nonviolent approach. And, of course, we have a trauma clearing program that we, uh, that we, you know, that we're involved with as well. But when we run an operation, <clears throat> a lot of times we will already know the conditions that the child is is in, and um, we try to move. We try to run an operation that is as look as less traumatizing as possible. Um, so we'll look for windows of opportunity where we can quietly and strategically and surgically remove that child from the perpetrator. Uh, we don't arrest perpetrators. Uh, we're not bounty hunters. Uh, as I said earlier, we don't carry weapons. We don't need them now. If for some reason a, a DOJ partnership asked ARC to go to Syria and rescue some American children that were being held by ISIS, would we arm ourselves and do that? Of course we would. And that's an environment that we're very familiar with. But here in the United States, we're operating just fine without being armed. We don't like to kick in doors. We like to keep a very low profile. Um, most of our operators don't look like operators. Um, we like to get in and out. Uh, as quietly as possible. Um, as you know, most of these victims are not street walkers. What we see now is a lot of the hotels are the location where the crime of sex trafficking occurs, 
uh, at least in the vast majority of the cases. And in 90% of our domestic trafficking cases, the victims were, in fact, not streetwalkers, but they remained in hotels or vacation or short-term rental units where they would post photos and advertise from their rooms using the Wi-Fi. Um, and so we were able to move in on this, get with our law enforcement partners who were uh, aware of this, because when you're working out of a hotel room, of course, um, what that does because of the public awareness um, and suppression efforts among law enforcement agencies, what the pimps are actually reducing in the street walking on prostitution tracks uh, is by using this as another advertising method. Um, and, of course, I mentioned online, you know, foster homes, traffic stops, bus stops, the street. I mean, the list goes on and on, truck stops. Businesses everywhere, like hotels, beauty salons, massage parlors, and, again, not all, but a lot. Uh, out the back door, barbershops, shopping malls, moving theaters. Uh, you know, people go out all day looking uh, all day long making transactions right in the open. And all this doing this in the open actually provides them an ideal cover for the sex trade. So unless you know what you're looking for, it's happening probably right in front of your face and you actually have no idea. And um, so whether we're looking at those hotels or we're looking at clubs or house parties um, or hotel trafficking, so to speak, you know, for kids that are showing up there, like a young girl who is with an older male or or they're dressed inappropriately for the conditions, like she's in a miniskirt and, and knee-high boots, and it's 20 degrees outside, and that's a little inappropriate for the conditions, uh, or they don't have proper ID, whatever it may be, this helps us hone in and realize that something's taking place and, um, and get with our law enforcement partners. And if law enforcement uh, can't be there and or who we have a great relationship says, you know, go ahead and, and do what you guys normally do, then then we'll go ahead and do that. But it's certainly uh, not obtrusive or not evasive uh, on our behalf. But in every case, you know, they every child we've gotten has literally come to us and we've gotten them to safety. It's, a, it's quite a remarkable thing. That is remarkable. It's just amazing and and. I'm divinely driven, obviously. Well, we've kind of come to uh, the last few minutes of this conversation, and I could go on for hours listening and learning from you. But what, if, you know, what is the most important thing that you would like listeners today to take away from our conversation? What's, what do you want to hit them over the head with? You know, I think the most important thing is that we need – eyes and ears on the ground. You know, in 9-11, when we got attacked by terrorists, I remember the uh, White House administration saying, you know what, we need to be vigilant. We need to be vigilant. And as a former counterterrorism officer, I had people right and left going, well, what does that mean? How do I become vigilant? And what the government was basically saying was, we've got this. But the government didn't have this. Um, uh, we don't have enough law enforcement. We don't have enough CIA. We don't have enough FBI. We've never had enough, and we're never going to have enough unless you want to be living in a, a military dictatorship, so to speak. What we do have enough of are American people, we the people, and this is our country. And so I want to encourage all Americans that are listening to this to 
understand what not only understand what the problem is, but get involved in the solution to stop our children from being sexually exploited in America. You know, we're probably never going to stop sex trafficking in America, but we can we can put a dent in it. And as an American, if you know what you're looking for, you can say something or you can go to the authorities or you might even be able to do something about it yourself. You know, there is a thing called a citizen's arrest. Um, if you see a crime in progress, you can make an arrest as an American citizen. I think people forget about that. So if you know beyond a shadow of a doubt, you know, that a young child is being abducted, what is there to prevent you from stopping that abduction from taking place? I don't know of anything, to be honest with you. And so what I want to encourage is that Americans get involved. You know, speak to your law enforcement. Come alongside of them. See how you can support them. Um, Get involved to the point where law enforcement says, wow, you know what, we need your help. You can help us by doing A, B, C, or D. Or go to our website and ask us about the three-day course and let us get you on the same sheet of music with everybody else and become a force to be reckoned with in this nation so that you can say to the bad guys, this is not going to happen any longer on my watch. These are American children, and I, am, I care about American children. I'm not going to let this happen to one single child in my country. Um, and that's what I would leave with the American public, to be honest with you. Wow. This, this has just been an amazing conversation with you, Basel Baz. And why don't you give out your contact information, your website, how people get in touch with you. And, and I would specifically like to urge and encourage and demand that law enforcement agencies out there get with you to get this three-day training course because the sooner we get like you say everybody on the same page of music the better off the children are going to be maybe we can put a dent in this um so go ahead and give out that information that we can get in touch with you certainly our website is www.recoveryofchildren.org that's www.recoveryofchildren.org all one word we also have Association for the Recovery of Children Facebook, where you can follow what we're doing there. And, of course, our number uh, at the office is 310-373-2319. Uh, again, that's 310-373-2319. And uh, let me encourage you to, if, if, if you need help with what we're dealing with, all of this with human trafficking, please don't hesitate to give us a call or email us. And uh, if we can't provide the, the answer for you, we'll certainly put you in touch with some people that can. Absolutely. Well, again, I thank you for taking the time to be here today and to go so far in depth with this issue because it's, it's something people need to learn more about and they need to learn the facts. They Everything you read, everything you see on media isn't always fact-based, so remember that. Um, so everybody get on board, get to the website, get the three-day training course, make a donation. It's, it's for your kids. 
that we're doing this. And again, thank you, Vaz. I I can't wait till we meet up again, and I hope that's very soon. So everyone, as you you go out into this world today, just remember one thing. Be kind to each other. 